You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading comes from Exodus 17, chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, And you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. Help us now to see Christ in it. Help us to lift our eyes to him, the author and perfecter of our faith. For your glory and for our own joy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we've been walking through the book of Exodus. It's good to be back in it uh, this evening. Uh, well, it was, it was 4 a.m. on Thursday morning of this last week that I was lying in bed, wide awake, because our neighbor's dog had been barking from about 8.30 the night before. Uh, I had uh, texted my neighbors, called them, uh, rang the doorbell. Their phones were off, no one was home. Uh, And so I just didn't sleep very much that night. It turns out they were on a cruise and uh, the house sitter just kind of didn't show up that evening. Uh, But then as I was at 4.30, silently very frustrated, very sleepy, Uh, grumbling my life away. Uh, I remembered, oh yes, I've been reading and preparing through Exodus 15 through 17 all week uh, this week, which is just about grumbling. So I resolved that morning at 4.30 in the morning uh, to not uh, get out of bed uh, when the sun came up and uh, make some passive-aggressive social media post or something. I instead resolved to grumble in a much more spiritual way in the context of a sermon uh, on Sunday. Uh, I'm still very sleepy. Uh, from Thursday night. Uh, Anyway, grumbling might just be like the default mode of our hearts. Like we're just constantly uh, discontent, finding things wrong with the world around us, and making those uh, just silent frustrations known to our own hearts or to others. The circumstances of a barking dog in a nice suburban neighborhood are like monumentally insignificant to the troubles of the world around us. But nearly always we find ourselves struggling to trust that that God is both there, that God cares, or that God is like actually able to do anything about the miserable 
or perhaps less so miserable, but still frustrating circumstances in our lives. So what's the solution? What is the fix to this discontent, this untrusting, this grumbling heart of ours? Well, back to Exodus we go. I, I hope that our one-week detour last week into Mark's gospel to uh, more deeply consider the Lord's Supper was helpful. It certainly was for me, but now we're back to Exodus 15 through 17, where the narrative presents Israel in back-to-back-to-back episodes, uh, where they are lacking something, then their response, and then God's, perhaps most importantly, in all three of these episodes, God's gracious provision for them. So we're going to move tonight through towards a big idea that God provides for his faithless children to grow them for his glory. And we're going to do this under three sandwiched headings, that of thirsty, hungry, and thirsty. Like, because I love sandwiches, and I'm, I'm like, I, I love, well, I'm hungry anyway right now. Just think about sandwiches, but let's get to it, of thirst and hunger and thirst. So our first episode, since we are taking such a, such a big chunk tonight, I only had Taylor read that third section of chapter 17. So let's pick it up uh, in verse 22 of chapter 15. Right at the top, we read that the people have just left the Red Sea. They have seen the mighty power of God to save them, and now they are heading into the wilderness. They are forever and finally free from slavery, from their cruel, now dead Egyptian taskmasters, and it is just blue skies ahead of them. And though the skies are blue, the skies are very hot and are very dry. So verse 22, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Now, my first inclination in like the whole course of my life in reading through this story, considering this story, is to think like three days after all that the people have seen God do in their lives, after they have seen the plagues, they have seen the Passover, they have seen the Red Sea, three days is all it took them to return to their grumbling ways. Like after all of that, they get just a little bit thirsty, and now it's back to grumble, 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 and how we hate God. But seriously, like, I wonder how much different many of us would be after three days. Like, if we had all of us, perhaps after the service tonight, like, we got a camel back and we filled it up one time, and then all 150 of us or so, we all just started walking west towards Mount Taylor. Like, would we make it to Wednesday afternoon with just wonderfully joyful and content hearts? I doubt it. Now, of course, the difference was that God had acted so definitively and was leading the people even uh, visibly with cloud and fire on toward a promised destination. If we just started walking west, we wouldn't have much purpose or divine guidance with us. But here's my point. Like, water is a very, very real need. It's not like Israel was like, you know what we need out here in the wilderness is like air mattresses. Or, you know, Netflix would really be really great. I can't really fall asleep, God, out here until I unwind for an hour under, or like before, Parks and Rec or something. Uh, and the Wi-Fi is just terrible. Like, the light is hitting these low mountains in such great ways. I'm getting lots of great shots. And how are the people going to know of this amazing experience that I'm having out here in the wilderness when there's no Wi-Fi? These are not first world problems that the Israelites are dealing with. They have been walking through the desert wilderness really, really thirsty when it appears now God has provided for them. 
They're, they see a spring ahead. They get to this spring, and they're likely thinking, like, the Lord provides. How good of he to provide for us. And then they get to the water, and it's bitter. It is undrinkable. A paraphrase of what they say to Moses in verse 24 might be, how are we supposed to drink this? God has always provided, but it sure looks like he hasn't this time. There might be real doubt amongst some of the people that the very young amongst them and the very old amongst them like actually won't survive this ordeal. The people are grumbling, but the circumstances are really, really bad. But then God provides. Moses cries out to Yahweh and God shows him a log very strange thing, a log which Moses then throws into the water and then it makes this water sweet and very drinkable. Throughout the centuries, folks have tried to figure out what kind of wood this was that like, possessed such magical qualities to purify the water. Uh, but it seems that the best explanation is that God just provides a miracle of provision for the people through Moses that the entire nation might drink. As one commentator says, with this log and with the tree of life in Genesis and with the tree of life in Revelation 22 and the very cross of Christ, it seems that God uh, specializes in healing trees. And he is doing that here as well. But why? Why did they have to go through this whole thing in the first place? Why didn't God just send them out from the Red Sea with like a rolling water fountain or something that could go with them wherever they were? And if he was just going to have them drink out of this spring anyway, why put Israel through the emotional roller coaster of approaching the spring only to find it to be undrinkable? Well, the second half of verse 25. There the Lord, Yahweh, made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh, the Lord, your healer. This theme of testing is coming up here in chapter 15, and will continue on into chapter 16. And what testing doesn't mean is like pop quizzes or exams that God is giving to the people that he waits to pounce on them the first time that they answer incorrectly or act incorrectly. There are certainly hints of the coming law in verse 26 of his statutes, that he is hoping and wanting them to learn to obey. And again, we'll see expectations of obedience in chapter 16. But Israel is not put through a period of testing uh, to show that they are the smartest or the wisest. They are not put through a test to show that they studied the most and that they deserve to get into, like, the Harvard promised land because they have a higher ACT or MCAT or LSAT score than like the Amalekites or something. This is not what's going on. It isn't because they have been obedient that God has brought them safe thus far, has it? We have certainly seen their disobedience. And yet God intends to actually change their character. God intends to actually change their lives and their faith in God that manifests itself into obedience. In a few chapters, Moses will tell Israel what this testing means. In Exodus 20, 20, Moses tells the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you. Why? That the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Like we thought through a few weeks ago, Israel is brought out uh, of Egypt, but they are barely, maybe, out of its early stages of infancy. They have had not a very long time to trust in the goodness and the faithfulness of God. They are like toddlers who are learning to trust their parents. When an infant or a toddler or even a bit of an older 
baby or young kid uh, wants something or needs something, they just cry. They don't have vocabulary uh, to ask. They don't even have categories to ask and request. They just feel a need and respond emotionally. They don't have very long experience of all, at all, of trusting in the provision of parents who care for them. And so just like a caring parent might put their child into opportunities for failure, always with the child, but then actually taking off the floaty and then letting the child's head go under the water, not bailing out a teenager, perhaps, when they haven't studied or they haven't they're behind on an assignment or their homework, and then actually letting the teenager's head go underwater with a bad grade. Whatever it may be, that there might be growth either in ability or growth, perhaps even more so, in character, and even increasing trust in the provision of the parent. Yahweh is doing the same here with his son, with his infant toddler-like son, Israel, letting their heads go under the water, even the bitter water that they might learn to trust him the question is not if god will provide for his people in the wilderness the question is how and they are learning that he is yahweh their provider and their healer in deuteronomy 1 as the people are about to enter into the land moses reminds the people how god carried them across the wilderness like a father everything that's happening here this testing god as a father is carrying his child Israel, across the wilderness as a father carries his son. This is certainly more than just like a trite little story about how someone looks behind them on the beach and sees only one pair of footprints and then finds out it was Jesus all along who was carrying them. But shoot, there's some serious truthfulness to that trite little story, isn't there? Of God not only allowing difficulty into the lives of his children, but then even leading them to bitter waters. Why? so that his children might learn to trust him, that his children might actually learn to want to be carried by him in his faithfulness, to provide for their very real needs. In other words, periods of testing aren't for God's benefit, for him to learn who will pass and fail in faithfulness. Periods of testing are for our benefit, for us to learn of his faithfulness, and to slowly grow out of our weak faith through longer time with a faithful father. So after they all refill their camelbacks here at the spring, he he takes them in verse 27 to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees as they encamped there by the water, a spring for every tribe and a palm tree for every elder clan. There they camped by the water, presumably making s'mores and singing Chris Tomlin songs about how great is our God to provide for our every need. Yahweh is Israel's providing God, and Israel is his people, and they are content and happy to be his people. Life is wonderful until the next morning. They've been thirsty, and now secondly, they will be hungry. I'm going to read a pretty good chunk of chapter 16 here. So we'll read that and then swing back around with some reflections. So follow along with me in a Bible that you may have, your Bible, or if you want to grab one in front of you, Exodus 16.1. There they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. 
And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my way or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, of Yahweh, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what, we are, that you, for what are we, that, we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but is against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of Yahweh appeared in the cloud. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given to you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take each an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Okay, so now, a couple of days, a couple of weeks after they have left the springs of Elam, now they are very hungry. Again, these are not necessarily first world problems, right? As Americans, if we're forced to skip one meal, much less a whole day's worth of meals, we start to freak out. But again, they're not only grumbling, but this time returning to an old refrain, that it would have been better if Moses and this so-called God that he is speaking for, if they had just never showed up in Egypt at all. They would have rather lived as slaves under the tyranny of Pharaoh than to live as sons under the fatherhood of God. Because then, at least as slaves, at least their bellies were full. Although these were very real needs of thirst and hunger, just like Israel, we can very often be led by our own appetites. We trust the things that we want to give us temporary satisfaction without counting any costs, without considering any self-control. Why? Because we'd still rather be slaves than sons. We'd rather be slaves to our temporary appetites, than sons who are free to live in the fullness of joy. Like Esau back in Genesis 25, we would forgo our birthright as sons for just the temporary filling of our stomachs. And so Russell Moore in his excellent book, Tempted and Tried, he concludes this, as, the te as temptation wages war on us right now, the first step we need to take to break its power is to recognize what the appetites are there for in the first place. And that means... Recovering a sense of who you are apart from what you want. 
The world around you often defines you in terms of what you want. The advertising world sees you as a consumer, defining, defined by your buying power and product preferences. Beyond that, other forces would seek to define you by your appetites themselves. If you want to drink, you're a drunk. If you desire any kind of physical pleasure, then that's your need, and you must be true to yourself. And so it goes. But you don't live by bread alone. You are not what you want. To lose control of your appetites is to lose sight of the gospel itself, the truth that God knows what you need to survive, the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus. God allows his people to hunger so he can feed them with what is better than what they would choose. The Israelites wanted Egyptian onions and leeks. God was training their appetites for the bread from heaven. So not only are your appetites untrustworthy, but they are too small. They are appetites for things that will actually never fill you. But they are there to point us to that which is more eternally satisfying. When we identify those appetites, the answer can't be merely, okay, just stop indulging these appetites. These things for which are not God, just stop indulging those. The answer must be to first understand that indulging those appetites aren't actually keeping their promises. C.S. Lewis once wrote that what does not satisfy when we find it was not the thing that we were desiring. The thing that when it doesn't satisfy when we find it, that was actually not the thing that we were desiring. There is something behind that which we were desiring. The reason that God has given us hunger for certain things is to finally and fully show us and satisfy us in Christ. In John 6, there is a new people. They are hungry in the wilderness, and they are grumbling. And as the new Moses in John 6, Jesus feeds them again with bread. But then he goes a step further and says that he is the bread that is, has come down from heaven. Not only is Jesus the Moses, the new Moses who is leading his people through the wilderness, he is the manna itself, the bread from heaven, which has come down to feed and satisfy his people. In his life and his death and his resurrection, the land to which we are traveling is a foregone conclusion. It is there God has promised it to us, and he will get us there. For those who walk by faith, our lives are ones as traveling pilgrims, moving toward our final place of rest, but not yet. Not experiencing final peace and, peace and rest yet, but still experiencing tastes of it. The manna which God gives to his people, it tastes like honey. And this is a small taste of the land which flows with honey to which they are moving. And in the same way, the Lord is good to give, give us glimmers of goodness in the land to which we are traveling. Small bits of prosperity, small bits of peace and rest, small bits of health. He has given us small bits of unity with one another. He has given us even this supper of the bread and the cup. But it is a small bit, it is a glimmer, it is a taste of that which is to come. None of these things are home. We still experience real lack in this life on the road, we still experience real need, we still experience real sin, we still experience real death. And yet morning by morning, new mercies I see. His kindness and his grace are new each day and he provides just what I need. That each day I might find joy and contentment in him. These things that I might uh, think that I need, he might not actually provide, but he does provide what I do need. Today, his grace is sufficient 
for you to give you joy and contentment in him. That like manna, he gives enough for today so that we are not anxious about tomorrow. We're not trying to hoard up and gather enough grace and joy for today because we're afraid that it might not last until tomorrow. We know that no, tomorrow he'll provide as well. Just like Jesus would say elsewhere, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow can be anxious about itself. And so we can trust that his grace is sufficient for today. And yet at the end of chapter 16, we get a bit of a setup for the program of the Sabbath. Uh, that of not uh, gathering enough for this seventh day of the week, but trusting the Lord to provide. We'll save a bit of a deep dive for the Sabbath when we get to the fifth commandment, but then we get an out-of-order future reflection in verse 35, where at the end of, it seems like, the people are on the, the border of the promised land. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. In other, words, in other words, we might sum up this experience through the wilderness with manna each day as tis grace that has brought me safe thus far and tis grace will bring me home. The Lord provided for his people throughout this wilderness pilgrim traveling towards home. And we have much to learn and consider from that experience as well. So God has quenched their thirst. He has filled their bellies. But then we turn the page into chapter 17. And now here again, they are thirsty again. In chapter 17, there is no water, and the people are quarreling with Moses. At the end of verse 2 in chapter 17, Moses asks them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Notice now that it isn't Yahweh who is testing the people, but it is the people who are testing Yahweh. In fact, we find out in verse 7 that Moses names this place Massah and Meribah. Massah meaning to test and Meribah meaning to argue or to quarrel. But usually in the sense of like legal arguing, something maybe closer to litigate. This is the place of arguing and litigating, testing. This is the place of Yahweh's trial. The people have called him into the courtroom. They have had it with all of this walking and wandering. They have had it with all this hunger and thirst, all this difficulty and struggle. They have had it with all this delayed gratification and character building and growing in faith and dependence. That's enough. We just want the stuff. Now, not to beat a dead horse, but the desire for water is not a bad thing. It would be good for these people to cry out to God, to depend on him for Provision. After all, this is exactly what God, what prompted God's movement toward them in slavery in the first place. God heard their cries and he came down to them to deliver them out of Egypt. Where Israel goes horribly off the rails is to make a good desire, a good desire for water, to make a good desire into a demand. And if God doesn't operate under their timeline, then he is not good or he is not worthy of our following him. Very often we make desires into demands, even good desires. We make a desire for better grades or better jobs. We have desires and then make desires of better health and better stuff into demands. We have good desires to be married. We have good desires to have children. Sometimes we even have bad desires for better marriages or better children. 
We have all sorts of good and bad desires, and then we turn these very quickly into demands of God, putting him on trial. If we don't get those things that we want, or it sure doesn't seem like it's going to happen, then God isn't good. Which is exactly the lie that we humans have been believing since Genesis 3, that God is somehow holding out on the good stuff. That he's holding out on human flourishing. He's holding out on giving us what we need to be happy and to find a fulfilled life. That he is not a God of abundant generosity, but he is a withholding, miserly old man. Hoarding blessing instead of richly giving it. The problem, of course, where desires turn into demands, is a question of the thing that we actually want. What is it that we want? In a book that I'm reading with several of you, You Are What You Love, James K.A. Smith tells of a 1979 uh, Russian science fiction dystopian weird movie called Stalker. Hang in there with me. This will go somewhere. Uh, Where, in this movie, there is a room. And if you crawl through this room, when you get into the room, you will find that whatever your heart desires most will be given to you. Not, this is, this is a little bit different, the room is, from just a genie. Because a genie, you ask what you want. And it might be uh, something that you might not actually be your deepest heart's desires. But you can ask what you want. The room will actually not give you what you think you want, but will actually give you what you want. And the two characters in this movie are both terrified to crawl through this hall and to go into the room. Why? Because they're afraid of what they might find. That what they actually want is much different than what they think that they want. So Smith says that most of us can probably identify. He says, if I ask you, a Christian, to tell me what you really want, what you most deeply long for, what you ultimately love, well, of course, you know the right answer. You know what to say. If there was a genie in front of you, you know how you would ask. You know what you ought to say, and what you state could be entirely genuine and authentic, a true expression of your intellectual conviction, but would you want to step into the room? Are you confident that what you think you love aligns with your innermost longings? That's, a, that's a, frankly a terrifying question. I've been thinking about that question a whole lot this week. For the time being, Israel has climbed into the room and found out what they most want is to always have their physical needs met. Comfort is their God. The triune God of glory, which has saved them, is leading them, and is currently with them, with his presence, is found to be a first runner-up to the God of comfort. As Americans, we people who perhaps the people on earth who have lived the most comfortable lives throughout all of human history, may think that we worship God above all else. But strip away any semblance of comfort. Climb through the hole into the room, and we may likely find that what we actually want looks much different than what we think we want. What do you want? This is a wonderful question to spend many hours this week or this month uh, thinking through. What do you want? What are your appetites showing you you want? And what is it behind those appetites that you actually want? What do I most deeply want? Comfort? Praise and admiration from others? 
a sense of belonging, sexual fulfillment, just having fun, just having amazing experiences, having a bucket list that I can check off one thing at a time, and then at the end of that, if, if, as long as the checklist is, is checked off, then, well, it was a good life. What is it that you want? But again, what does not satisfy when we find it was not the thing that you were desiring. In other words, sin, we might define as just this. Sin is desiring anything that is lesser than God. God wants you to have the highest level of joy possible in this life. This is true. He wants you to have the highest level of joy possible in this life. But the highest level of joy, the maximal level of joy to be found in this life is found in him. Or to quote, quote John Piper in what I know has changed many of our lives, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Or pleasure is the measure of your treasure. Write that down. I didn't make that up. Pleasure is the measure of your treasure. You want to know how much you treasure something? You want to know how much you treasure God? By how much pleasure you get out of him. By how much pleasure you get out of anything. Well, so what? So what if you find yourself actually not enjoying God? What if you find yourself actually just wanting more food and more water and whatever else your appetite and your belly might lead you toward? What if the circumstances around you make it seem like it's impossible not to grumble? Impossible not to look around at the things around you, the bad things that are going on in life. The sense of loneliness that you might be experiencing. The sense of physical pain and chronic illness. Financial problems that you might be experiencing. Think, it's impossible not to grumble. It's impossible not to, to, to actually trust God in this situation. Well, James K. Smith says that the antidote to reorienting desire is not from the top down, but actually from the bottom up. We are not just brains walking around on sticks. And Christian discipleship is not merely about depositing ideas and beliefs into our mind containers. Rather, habits, disciplines, all which form virtues, which begin to become second nature, that then shape, actually then shape our actual desires, actually shape our appetites, actually shape what it is that we want and love. And so Russell Moore is right to say that you are not what you want. Your appetites are not the thing that define you as a person. But Smith is also right to say that the things that you find yourself loving and enjoying actually are a very real part of who you are. What do you want? We've already seen Jesus confront desires and appetites in John 6 as he offers himself as the bread from heaven. But in John 1, right at the bat, in John's gospel, right at the top, maybe it, this might be a good summary for the rest of the book. This is the header for the book. Right at the top, two would-be disciples are following behind Jesus at a safe distance. And Jesus wheels around and he looks at him and he says, what are you seeking? He basically, he knows these guys are following him, and he turns around and he basically asks them, what do you want? What do you want out of this, out of me? Why are you following me? In John 4, in confronting a woman's deepest desires of sexual fulfillment or security of marriage, Jesus offers himself to her. Perhaps with the water of Exodus 17 in mind, when he says, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. 
The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John's gospel is all about confronting our desires and then meeting them in the person of Christ. And I don't think it's at all a stretch to say that Jesus had Exodus 17 in mind with the woman in the well, at the well in John 4 because in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says something really shocking. The rock in Exodus 17, the rock that was struck and then gushed forth water, the rock that sustained and gave life to Israel, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, that the rock was Christ. Not the rock was like Christ, not that this rock is like an interesting analogy or metaphor for what Jesus has done, but Jesus Christ, the man, the, the son of Joseph the carpenter, the man who lived about 33 years on earth and then was executed on a Roman cross, was present and was giving life to Israel in the wilderness thousands of years prior. It is the story of Jesus to be struck and to give life, to satisfy and to nourish. And yet Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 10 to say, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. The example for us of the people in the wilderness and of the rock who was Christ who nourished and satisfied them comes as an example for us that we might desire him and not desire things that are evil. Even more shockingly, Jude writes... Jude writes in his one-page, one-chapter little epistle at the end of the New Testament, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. This is a shocking thing in Jude, verse 5. Jesus of Nazareth, the itinerant and homeless rabbi, saved and led a people out of Egypt. That's wild. But what is perhaps even more wild, that perhaps doesn't jive with a familiar Jesus uh, that is perhaps around a contextual understanding, a modern contextual understanding of Jesus, what's perhaps more shocking is that this Jesus later destroyed them because of their grumbling unbelief. And so the room is not a dystopian Russian science fiction movie. The room, like the rock, is Christ. And he will give you what you actually want. He will give you himself. He will give you himself that he might satisfy you. He will give you what you want, not what you think you want. And the good news of the gospel is that the same is the same good news of Exodus 15 through 17. That even for grumbling, even for weak faith people, God is nevertheless abundantly gracious. Yahweh provides. Our sins, they are many. Our desires are twisted and small. Our appetites are pointed in all sorts of wrong directions. Our demands and accusations against God are belligerent and often like petulant children. Our sins, there are many, but his mercy is more. And like Israel, Yahweh will provide for his people what we need, that we might actually grow in faith. So that there's a question, not if God will provide, but how. How will he grow us and shape us today? 
How will he grow us and shape us this year? That we might grow in hope, not for comfort in this life along the way in the wilderness, but in the restful peace of the new heaven and the new earth. That we might grow in love for one another and for the God who has saved us. And that we might stir up one another in love and in good works. As traveling companions along the way in the wilderness, we might disciple one another, not just in right beliefs, but in right desires. Knowledge and doctrine are so important for how we understand God. But James K. Smith rightly says that discipleship is much more about hungering and thirsting than about knowing and believing. Knowing and believing are extremely important. We shouldn't pit those things against each other. But actually desiring God and then being satisfied by him. This is the Christian life. It is human nature to grumble. It is only of a supernatural, spirit-induced transformation that he pre presents a second nature to not grumble and complain, especially when things are going really bad. In fact, in Philippians 2, Paul says that the, things that, makes, the, things that the thing that makes Christians stand out most amongst the world around them, the thing that makes them shine like stars in the heavens, is this, to do all things without grumbling or disputing. This is like an otherworldly way of living, without grumbling and without disputing. So let's keep meeting with each other here on Sundays and in our homes as we continue our walk, our long walk across the wilderness, to keep walking and not be distracted by the gods of the passing nations, to not be distracted by the gods of our own appetites. Let's keep reading the Bible together and individually. Let's keep praying together and individually. Let's keep confronting ourselves with the person of Jesus who stands in front of us to ask us, what is it that you want? What do you want? So that more and more so, after decades of this life across the wilderness, we might with, act, with actual heartfelt desire and pleasure say to the Lord that my heart and my flesh may fail but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What do you want? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would forgive our weak faith, our small desires. Oftentimes we love all sorts of kinds of things more than you. You are often runner-up in our hearts, and we hate that. Oh, triune God, we pray that you would help us to want you. Help us to want the things that you want. Help us to want your word. May it actually be bread and life to us. Lord Jesus, may you be bread and life to us. Grow us, Father. We are immature often petulant children. Though you're letting our heads fall under the water can often be disorienting, can be terrifying. We pray that you would do it. We ask that you would do it. We pray that you would grow us so that we all might attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and deceitfulness. Ground us, Father. Grow us, we pray. 
for our own growing joy and for your great saving glory to be made known amongst all people. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.